Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 30 a.m. Moorhead. Flemingsburg Gazette, repeated at 5.30 p.m. and 1.30 a.m. 12.30 p.m., Lexington and Louisville, Kentucky Series, repeated 5.30 and 1.30 a.m. Eastern Kentucky and Moorhead, Lexington Business News, repeated at 5 p.m. and 1 a.m. 1 p.m., Book series, repeated at 9 p.m. and 5 a.m. 2 p.m., New York Times, repeated at 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. 3 p.m., Smithsonian Magazine, repeated at 11 p.m. 3.30 p.m., Diary of Science and Nature, 11.30 p.m. You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for Thursday, August 25th, 2022, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. As a reminder, Radio Eye is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Cindy Fraser. Let's begin with the WHAS 11 First Alert Forecast. Today, high 90, sunny, and hot. Tonight, low 68, mainly clear. Friday, high 90, low 69, sun, isolated storm. Saturday, high 91, low 71, sun, isolated storm. Sunday, high 91, low 72, sun, isolated storm. Monday, high 87, low 71, chance of thunderstorms. Tuesday, high 88, low 71, chance of thunderstorms. The local forecast. A code orange air quality alert has been issued for Louisville for Thursday. Expect more sunshine, heat, and humidity with highs around 90. Chances of a few thunderstorms will move back into the region through Friday and into the weekend. High temperatures will remain in the lower 90s. The Almanac, 4 Louisville through 4 p.m. Wednesday. Temperature, high 86, low 66. Normal high, 88. Normal low, 69. The record high was 99 in 2007. The record low, 51 in 1952. Precipitation, for the 24 hours through 4 p.m. Wednesday, zero. Month to date, 3.63 inches. Normal month to date, 2.97 inches. Year to date, 33.38 inches. Normal year to date, 32.67 inches. The pollen count from the National Allergy Bureau. Grass, absent. Weeds, moderate trees, absent, and molds, low. Air quality yesterday was moderate. Today is unhealthy for sensitive groups. Sun and moon cycles for Thursday. Sunrise, 7.06 a.m. Sunset, 8.23 p.m. Moonrise, 
5.08 a.m. Moonset, 8 p.m. Friday, sunrise, 7.07 a.m. Sunset, 8.22 p.m. Moonrise, 6.10 a.m. Moonset, 8.29 p.m. The new moon will be August 27. The first quarter, September 3rd. The full moon will be September 10th and the last quarter, September 17th. Weather history. The temperature plummeted to 10 degrees in Bowen, Montana on August 25, 1910. This is the lowest temperature ever reported in the United States in August. Now let's turn to the front page where our first item is entitled, Judges Hamming It Up at Kentucky State Fair. How the best is chosen without even tasting a sample by Maggie Menderski. I halfway expected red velvet ropes and laser sensors worthy of the Mona Lisa as I walked into the Kentucky State Fair. In theory, one of these hams was worth a few million dollars. Instead, I found 30 or so country hams and their undeniable salty, sweet aroma resting behind a series of wooden doors a wire screen, and a few padlocks. Each year, the prize-winning ham is auctioned off at the annual Kentucky Farm Bureau breakfast, and the proceeds go to the charity of the buyer's choice. Last year, the Kentucky State Fair's grand champion country ham sold for a record-breaking $4.8 million at auction. As stunning as that small fortune is, there's something even more curious about this pig than its ever-ballooning price tag. Each year, the prize ham is chosen without ever tasting it. At thousands of dollars per pound, one ham ends up on the auction block without anyone ever slicing into it to confirm that, yes, in fact, every bite is succulent, mouth-watering enough to be worth hundreds of dollars. I wanted to know how the judges could be so sure. I arrived at the Kentucky State Fair about a half hour before judging began, and a whole week before high rollers would pack into what has become the most elite ham auction in the country. One by one, Lashley Stith, the competition superintendent, unloaded the hams from that screened-in display case onto five different tables, as though she was setting the table for a feast made up of a lone ingredient. There were six different categories, divided by traits such as weight, the cure date, and whether the ham was produced in a commercial United States Department of Agriculture approved setting or in a hobbyist's home. No surprise, only ham curers rubber stamped by the USDA are eligible to be auctioned off the following week. A few minutes later, fair workers carried in a bow saw and a new microwave still in its packaging. As they unpacked it, I learned these tools are for the cut-in country ham competition. Only one country ham contest at the Kentucky State Fair actually involves sampling the meat, but those hams aren't suitable for the auction either. A cured country ham can sit out in the open air without any refrigeration for months, but once a ham is sliced, like these cut-in competitors, it must be refrigerated. Its shelf life declines rapidly, which brings us to what I'll fittingly call the spoiler alert of this column. Between you and me, I almost stopped taking notes on that cut-in contest, because reasonably, it had nothing to do with my mission of figuring out how country ham fair judges select an auction-worthy, multi-million dollar ham without ever tasting it. At the end of the competition, though, that cut-in competition helped teach me something really juicy about judging hams that I didn't expect. We'll get to that in a few minutes. As the clock approached 10 a.m., I introduced myself to this year's country ham judge, Bob Woods. He's been curing hams since 1981 and owns the Hammery in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Woods produces about 2,500 to 3,000 hams a year, and he has earned eight Grand Champion Ribbons from the Tennessee State Fair's ham competitions. Nestled in the pocket on his shirt, he had three probing tools secured in cardboard sleeves. These are essential to the art of judging. 
While you can't cut into the ham, you can penetrate it, Stith, the contest superintendent, told me when we spoke before the event. They actually can get an idea of how the ham would taste by smelling it, she said. They probe it, and from that, they can pull out what the smells are in there. By spearing into the ham, a judge can suss out how much smoke it has, what spices are in there, what kind of cure was used, and just how well that cure penetrated the meat. They can also identify unpleasant or unusual smells that suggest something is wrong with the ham. Think of these probing objects like small screwdrivers with the girth of a standard meat thermometer. Two of Wood's probes were stainless steel, and the third was Italian and made from the bone of a horse's foot. He prefers to use the bone tool, he explained, because it grips onto the scent of the meat more than the steel does. At 10 a.m., I scanned the room, hoping for a little hoopla to mark the beginning of the search for what's arguably the most expensive ham in the country. But the judging began without any pomp and circumstance, with myself as the lone bystander. Stith checked to make sure that all the tags identifying the producers were concealed. And, finally, she handed Woods a clipboard to score the meat. He took his position in front of the first ham and tapped his pencil thoughtfully against the side of his leg. Then the judge bent his body sideways and peered into the base of the meat, as if he was looking out of a mail slot in a doorway. What he was actually doing was checking the fat line and trying to get a sense of just how lean the ham was. There's a balance to this, he told me. A good ham has just enough fat that when you throw a slice in a skillet, it adds to the cooking process rather than overtaking it. Then Woods took his fingers and tenderly massaged the meat with his fingertips. You just want to make sure the ham is solid and that it doesn't have any soft places or sponge places, he told me. Next, he flipped the ham from side to side, but he never took it off the table. As he judged, he kept a small white towel within reach, and occasionally he'd wipe the residue from the cure off his fingers. Finally, he pulled one of the stainless steel probes from his pocket and jabbed about four inches into the ham. He ran the whole probe slowly beneath his nose, then wiped it clean on the towel before piercing it a second and third time in different parts of the meat. With each hole he created, he smudged the small cavity back together carefully before moving on to the next ham. Over the course of about two hours, I watched Woods do this more than 30 times. The longer he worked, the more the fanfare swelled around us. Is he cutting you a slice of ham, hon? One man asked me about 20 minutes into it. No, he's just smelling them, I answered. I'd like to jump over and smell them with him, he told me, practically drooling. Ham after ham, the spectators grew from a handful to a dozen, with each person seemingly salivating more than the next. Oh, they're judging, one man said excitedly. Do they need taste testers? Oh, the ham! Oh, oh, look! Another man crooned as he walked by. I've never seen this before, a woman said to the gentleman next to her. Your brother would just love this job. By the time we got to that microwave, the bow saw and the cut-in part of the competition, people had crammed around all sides of the roping to watch this spectacle with me. One fair worker steadied the ham while the other took a lumberjack-like stance and began sawing through the center of the hams all the way through the bone. Once this handful of hams were split, one of the workers took a new chef's knife fresh from the packaging and served up a couple of pieces from each on paper plates marked with a ham's contest number. One by one, the portion spun for about 15 seconds in that new microwave before Woods thoughtfully nibbled each entry and scored them. Meanwhile, four tables back, Stith pulled the best ham from the other categories so that Woods could name the contest's grand champion the prize ham that someone would presumably pay a fortune for at auction. With my stomach rumbling from watching the cut-in competition, I followed Woods towards the finalist, and, after a few minutes and a few more probes, he looked at me, satisfied. This is it, he told me. When I wondered out loud how he was so sure, he explained that this ham was stunning and picture-perfect. 
The technique on the trimming was polished and unparalleled. The smell, too, was unmatched. It just had a pleasing aroma, he continued. It made you long to cut into it. Can I smell it? I asked. He grinned kindly and took that horsebone probe and pushed it into the meat. Then he gave it a quick twist before inviting me to pull it out and see for myself. I'll be honest, readers, since I'm new to this, I have no idea if that grand champion smelled like a million dollars. But as I ran that polished bone beneath my nose, my stomach rumbled and my lips smiled. Oh, wow, I don't even know what words to put to that, I told him. The only way it would be any better would be if it was in Grandma's skillet, he told me. Then he let me in on a little secret. And readers, like I told you before, this is the part that gets really juicy. Woods had spent nearly two hours getting to know all of these hams as intimately as he could. And while he never peeked at the tags before identifying the competition, he told me he could recognize similar techniques throughout the competition. It wasn't difficult to guess which hams across the categories had come from the same person. What he said next, of course, is all speculation. But Woods believes there was one participant in this year's contest who never stood out in any category except for one. They were not the best trimmed, and they did not have the best confirmation. And they didn't score high in many categories except for taste, he explained, pausing. That's just how it worked out. The best-tasting ham in the cut-in competition wouldn't have won a beauty contest and didn't have that longing from the aroma from the grand champion. But when Woods bit into it, that competitor stood out. The ham didn't look like a champion, but in terms of flavor, it was a cut above the rest. And that answered my question about how do you pick out the most expensive ham in the country without ever tasting it more than anything else ever could have. You can trust your instincts, you can know the facts, and you find genuine beauty in the craftsmanship. All of those things will lead a judge to choosing an extraordinary, delectable ham. But without sampling all of them, there's really no way to know for sure which ham in the show tastes the most like a million dollars. This article is accompanied by photos. One of Judge Bob Woods holding up the blue ribbon-winning ham, which will be auctioned off for charity next Thursday. Another photo shows Secretary of Tourism Mike Berry, Agriculture Commissioner Ryan Quarles, Broadbent Country Ham's Ronnie Drennan, and Miss Kentucky America Hannah Adelin showing off the prize ham. Two more photos show Bob Woods judging the hams at the Kentucky State Fair on August 18th. Our next item from the front page is entitled, Special Session, Draft Bill Proposes $212 Million for Flood Zone, Most Relief Aid to Be from Rainy Day Fund, by Joe Sanka and Olivia Krauth. A special session of the Kentucky General Assembly to address relief for the flood-stricken eastern region of the state got underway Wednesday afternoon with early bill drafts indicating the state will appropriate more than $212 million of assistance. Twin draft bills in the House and Senate would set up an Eastern Kentucky State Aid Funding for Emergencies, EKY SAFE, fund, nearly identical to the one set up by the legislature this year to assist the Western Kentucky region, devastated by tornadoes in December. Under the proposals, $200 million would be appropriated to the new fund from the state's Rainy Day Fund, formerly known as the Budget Reserve Trust Fund account, which currently holds a record $2.7 billion. That $200 million would then be directed four different ways to assist affected local governments, public utilities, and school districts. Much like the SAFE Fund for Western Kentucky, $115 million of the $200 million fund for Eastern Kentucky will be administered by the Division of Emergency Management within the Department of Military Affairs to provide flood assistance for eligible entities, which include local governments, nonprofit or public utility service providers, state agencies, or school districts impacted by flooding in counties where there was a federal disaster declaration. These funds can be used to replace and renovate publicly owned buildings damaged in the flooding, 
while also covering the cost of local governments to plan for rebuilding from the damage and reimbursing them for services, personnel, and equipment they provided in response and recovery phases. Financial assistance also would be available for public school districts to avoid defaulting on bond payments and to help with building and tangible property replacement needs. Of the $115 million appropriated, $40 million is set aside for local school districts and the nonprofit or public utility service providers. An additional $40 million would be appropriated from the SAFE Fund to the Kentucky Department of Education to cover extra expenses facing impacted school districts, including wraparound services for students and families and additional transportation funds to pick up displaced students. The remaining $45 million from the Eastern Kentucky SAFE Fund would be directed to the Highway Fund of the Transportation Cabinet for reimbursement from their Federal Emergency Disaster Assistance. Besides the $200 million in the region's SAFE Fund, the draft bill also would appropriate $12.6 million from Kentucky's reserved federal funds from the American Rescue Plan Act, which would go toward water and sewer infrastructure related to the flooding. This funding would be limited to water and sewer infrastructure projects necessary for recovery, the rebuilding of replacement school facilities, and not previously utilized housing sites designed to mitigate the risk of future flooding. School districts get more leeway. School districts in the flooded region would see more flexibility under the draft legislation. Several districts have delayed their school years, some indefinitely, as flooded schools are cleaned and evaluated. Districts would be able to waive up to 15 instructional days missed due to the flooding between now and January. Superintendents would be able to send specific groups of students to remote instruction for up to 20 days in the same time frame. They'll also get more leeway to meet the state's required amount of instructional time. Most of a long list of requests the Kentucky Department of Education made on behalf of districts ultimately made their way into the draft legislation. The department is happy the governor and the General Assembly are working together to quickly address the many needs facing our schools in eastern Kentucky after the historic flooding, said Tony Constatman, the department's spokeswoman. Financial Stability for Western Kentucky The draft legislation would give more opportunities for financial assistance to local governments and school districts in Western Kentucky from their SAFE fund, too, allowing them to recover from their realized revenue losses during the tornadoes. Under the plan, such Western Kentucky entities could receive assistance for 100% of their lost revenue in the 2022-23 through 23 fiscal year, 60% in 2023 through 24, and 33% in 2024 through 25. This shift could be particularly helpful for school districts as they eye next year's budgets amid expected massive drops in revenue from property taxes, one of their main funding sources. Dawson Springs, which is home to a roughly 500-student district directly hit by December's tornado, lost about $15 million in assessed property value. For the school district to continue to pull in the same amount of property tax revenue, it would need to raise property tax 15 cents, Superintendent Leonard Whalen said. A raise that large, Whalen said, is just not doable, and I couldn't in good conscience even bring that up to his school board. Whalen wanted to see a five-year tax stabilization from the state to cover the difference between what the district needs and what it has. The state House and Senate are scheduled to gavel in the special session at 3 p.m. Wednesday, with a joint meeting of the House and Senate Budget Committees then going over the final version of the relief bill. Republican leaders have indicated the bill will be passed Friday, having worked out agreements with Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. Our next item from the front page is entitled, Biden Unveils Major Student Debt Cancellation Plan. He also extends pause on federal loan payments by Seong Min Kim, Chris Mangerian, Colin Binkley, and Zeke Miller, from the Associated Press, from Washington. President Joe Biden on Wednesday announced his long-awaited plan to deliver on a campaign promise to provide $10,000 in student debt cancellation for millions of Americans, 
and up to $10,000 more for those with the greatest financial need, along with new measures to lower the burden of repayment for the remaining federal student debt. Borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year, or families earning less than $250,000, would be eligible for the $10,000 loan forgiveness, Biden announced in a tweet. For recipients of Pell Grants, which are reserved for undergraduates with the most significant financial need, the federal government would cancel up to an additional $10,000 in federal loan debt. Biden is also extending a pause on federal student loan payments for what he called the final time, through the end of 2022. He was set to deliver remarks Wednesday afternoon at the White House to unveil his proposal to the public. If his plan survives legal challenges that are almost certain to come, it could offer a windfall to a swath of the nation in the run-up to this fall's midterm elections. More than 43 million people have federal student debt, with an average balance of $37,667, according to federal data. Nearly a third of borrowers owe less than $10,000, and about half owe less than $20,000. The White House estimates that Biden's announcement would erase the federal student debt of about 20 million people. Proponents say cancellation will narrow the racial wealth gap. Black students are more likely to borrow federal student loans and at higher amounts. Four years after earning bachelor's degrees, black borrowers owe an average of nearly $25,000 more than their white peers, according to a Brookings Institution study. Still, the action is unlikely to thrill any of the factions that have been jostling for influence as Biden weighs how much to cancel and for whom. Biden has faced pressure from liberals to provide broader relief to hard-hit borrowers and from moderates and Republicans questioning the fairness of any widespread forgiveness. The delay in Biden's decision only heightened the anticipation for what his own aides acknowledge represents a political no-win situation. The people spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss Biden's intended announcement ahead of time. The White House emphasized that no one in the top 5% of incomes would see any loan relief. The continuation of the coronavirus pandemic-era payment freeze comes just days before millions of Americans were set to find out when their next student loan bills would be due. This is the closest the administration has come to hitting the end of the payment freeze extension, with the current pause set to end August 31st. Details of the plan have been kept closely guarded as Biden weighed his options. The administration said Wednesday the Education Department will release information in the coming weeks for eligible borrowers to sign up for debt relief. Cancellation for some would be automatic if the department has access to the income information, but others would need to fill out a form. Current students would only be eligible for relief if their loans were originated before July 1, 2022. Biden is also proposing capping the amount that borrowers must pay monthly on undergraduate loans at 5% of their earnings. The Education Department is to post a proposed rule to that effect, which would also cover the unpaid monthly interest for borrowers who remain current with their monthly payments, even when the payments are $0 because their incomes are low. During the 2020 presidential campaign, Biden was initially skeptical of student loan debt cancellation as he faced off against more progressive candidates for the Democratic nomination. Senators Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, and Bernie Sanders, independent from Vermont, have proposed cancellations of $50,000 or more. As he tried to shore up support among younger voters and prepare for a general election battle against President Donald Trump, Biden unveiled his initial proposal for debt cancellation of $10,000 per borrower, with no mention of an income cap. Biden narrowed his campaign promise in recent months by embracing the income limit as soaring inflation took a political toll and as he aimed to head off political attacks that the cancellation would benefit those with higher take-home pay. But Democrats, from members of congressional leadership to those facing tough re-election bids this November, have pushed the administration to go as broad as possible on debt relief, seeing it, in part, as a galvanizing issue, particularly for black and young voters this fall. The positive impacts of this move will be felt by families across the country, 
particularly in minority communities, and is the single most effective action that the president can take on his own to help working families and the economy, said Warren on Wednesday in a joint statement with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. Although Biden's plan is changed from what he initially proposed during the campaign, he'll get a lot of credit for following through on something that he was committed to, said Celinda Lake, a Democratic pollster who worked with Biden during the 2020 election. A survey of 18 to 29-year-olds conducted by the Harvard Institute of Politics in March found that 59% of those polled favored debt cancellation of some sort. This concludes readings for the first sections of the Courier-Journal for Thursday, August 25, 2022. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Cindy Fraser. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Thursday, August 25, 2022, starting with the Metro section. Your reader is Cindy Fraser. We will start with the obituaries. We read only the name, age, and location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we will be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I will repeat that number at the end of the listings. Bobby Joe Austin Sr., 77, from Owensboro. Terry Boaz, 86, from Greenville. Grace Bowles, 103, from Richmond. Rochelle E. Brown, 72, of Louisville. Joseph Bruner, 88, of Radcliffe, Dolores Margaret Carrier, 93, of Louisville, James E. Cassidy, 77, of Troy, Charles Chesser, 71, of Bloomfield, Evelyn Kuhn, 81, of Louisville, Porter J. P.J. Davis, 84, of St. Croix, W. Roger Drury, 75, of Louisville. Dwight B. Durham, 61, of Louisville. Paula Fields, 59, of Hazard. Monty Ray Fulkerson, 82, of Louisville. Jacqueline Grizzard Fulner, 69, of Louisville. Albert Garland, 80, of Barberville. Juanedith Gentry, 90, of Louisville. Elizabeth Gordon, 87, of Louisville. Paul Gallo Granda, Sr., 54, of Louisville. Mr. Charles L. Greenhill, 85, of Hanover. Amy Marie Griggs, 50, of Louisville. Shirley Wright Gritton, 84, of Bloomfield. Catherine Irvin, 79, of Mount Washington. Frida M. John, 96, of New Albany. Jimmy Judge, 88, of Frankfurt. Wayman LaVon Knight, Sr., 74, of Drakesboro. James Jr. Lanham, 79, of Elizabethtown. Thomas Sherwood Lott, 69, of Vine Grove. Mary Louise Fraser Martin, 82, of Bedford. George R. Booney Mason, Jr., 87, of Louisville. David Double Deuce McCollum, 91, of Falls of Ruff. Michael L. McDaniel, 65, of Owensboro. Marvin Lee McLaughlin, 82, of Scottsburg, Indiana. 
Dolores Ann McIntyre, 67, of Hazard. Suzanne Hutchinson Miller, 75, of Owensboro. Ernest Austin Miller, 79, of Glasgow. Carolyn S. Nevitt, 79, of Owensboro. Miles Offit, no age given, of Richmond. Nancy Marie Parsons, 89, of Louisville. Phyllis D. Rainey, 73, of Shepherdsville. Patricia Reardon, 82, of Canelton. Luvenia Bell Jackson Richards, 86, of Owensboro. Carolyn Frances Vincent Riggs, 84, of Louisville. Sandra Robertson, 62, of Crestwood. Marjorie Sloan Rose, 94, of Owensboro. Terry Lee Bird Shacklett, 70, of Ekron. Alice Duke Shepard, 85, of Owensboro. Mr. Joe Ryan Tevis, 77, of Hanover. John Tharp, 77, of Sellersburg. Keith L. Watson, 79, of Floyd's Knobs. Virginia Guernsey Wooten Weber, 90, of Louisville. Wayne Douglas Wiegand, 74, of Louisville. Charles David Willis, 75, of Barberville. Christopher David York, 28, of Owensboro. If you would like further information about any of the listings today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we will be glad to read the entire item to you. Now let's turn to the Metro page, where our first item is entitled, DNC Chair, From Hood to the Holler, Booker is There. Democratic Leader Brings National Support to Rally for Senate Candidate. By Morgan Watkins. The National Democratic Party showed U.S. Senate candidate Charles Booker some love this week by sending a top official to Louisville to stump for his David versus Goliath bid to defeat Republican Senator Rand Paul. Democratic National Committee Chair Jamie Harrison joined Booker Tuesday, meeting with local union leaders and other folks during the day before appearing at a fundraiser to support the Kentuckians' candidacy and then at a campaign rally that evening, where over 300 people gathered at the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage. Booker's campaign generally has lacked significant support from national and democratic organizations, and Booker indicated he hopes Harrison's visit can change perspectives on, and combat cynicism about, his challenge to Paul. At Tuesday's rally, Louvillian and singer-songwriter Mars warmed up the crowd with a few songs before Kentucky Democratic Party Chair Coleman Elridge delivered the first speech of the night. Election forecasters widely expect Paul to sail to re-election, despite Booker's challenge in increasingly Republican Kentucky on election night this November. Elridge acknowledged that perception, but said Tuesday, When we're told we can't achieve something, we have the audacity to say, Just wait. When Harrison came on stage, he talked about what the Democratic Party has accomplished nationally since winning the White House and a slim Senate majority in 2020, including enacting the American Rescue Plan, a bipartisan infrastructure law, the biggest gun reform law in decades, and the Inflation Reduction Act. Paul voted against all four. Harrison said they'll deliver even more if Kentuckians send Booker to Capitol Hill. Folks, what is important in politics is not to tell people what we are going to do, but to show people what we will do, he said. And that is what sets Charles Booker apart from Rand Paul. That is the difference between Charles Booker and so many people who are in politics. Because for him, it is not just having the speeches. He's going into the community from the hood to the holler. Hope was a big theme for the night, with Harrison telling the crowd, In this nation, in a state where they have never had an African-American serve as a United States senator, in this nation, we can turn that hope into action. 
If we're really serious about bringing hope all across the nation, there's another four-letter word that we have to use. Some people in the crowd shouted out the answer, vote. Harrison introduced Booker as our hope warrior, and people welcomed the would-be senator with cheers. Thank you for believing with me, Booker told the Kentuckians who came to rally around him that night. We have an opportunity to seize power in a way that is historic. Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell want us to doubt. They want us to sit down, he said. This movement is not defined by the doubters. It's defined by the doers. I'm asking you to be a doer with me. This article is accompanied by photos. One was taken at a campaign rally for U.S. Senate candidate Charles Booker and shows Democratic National Committee Chairman Jamie Harrison telling the crowd that with the right people in Washington, the Democratic Party can accomplish a lot more. Another two photos show the crowd at that rally. Individuals in the crowd are holding up signs that say Charles Booker for U.S. Senate. Our next item from the Metro section is entitled Special Session. School leaders name flood relief priorities. Immediate cash needed to clean, rebuild in eastern Kentucky. By Olivia Krauth. Helping eastern Kentucky's small rural school districts grapple with the aftermath of devastating flooding needs to be a key part of lawmakers' special session legislation, district leaders say. A flood relief targeted special session is set to begin Wednesday at noon and run until at least Friday. Some schools are acting as community hubs and donation centers, while other campuses are being gutted after landing in the flash flood's direct path in late July. What do disaster-stricken school districts want from state leaders? Here are three requests from educators and district leaders. Immediate cash. Several eastern Kentucky schools took a direct hit from July's flooding. Many will need intensive work to be safe for students, and some will likely need to be rebuilt entirely. Organizations like FEMA will ultimately cover much of the district's disaster-related expenses, but districts need to pay first and be reimbursed later. Districts worry about keeping the district afloat while paying for maintenance and construction. I'm worried about having money because there's quite a few expenses, Letcher County Superintendent Denise Yaunt said and being able to take care of our school expenses, our staff, all of our employees. Governor Andy Beshear's special session proclamation allows lawmakers to create a state aid fund for eastern Kentucky, as well as extending a twin fund for western Kentucky until June 2026. Wave instructional time. Some school years are postponed indefinitely in eastern Kentucky. Educators question how they'll be able to fit the statutorily required amount of instructional time into a school year that may be condensed by several weeks. A state waiver from the required instructional time may be necessary, Yant said. Doing everything I can do, I might not be able to get the time, Yant said, and not knowing what winter holds when we have bad winters here. Lawmakers will be allowed to relax requirements around how many days students need to attend school and how often districts can use non-traditional instruction. It is unclear what lawmakers will shift in their legislation. Rural school districts used NTI before COVID-19 to continue learning when winter weather made mountain roads impassable. Jans estimated Letcher County missed 25 days of school last year due to weather. Districts traditionally get 10 NTI days per year. Long-term stability. While eastern Kentucky schools continue immediate recovery efforts, their western Kentucky counterparts have shifted their focus to the long-term. Dawson Springs Independent would need to raise its property tax around 15 cents to maintain its current funding level despite a severe loss in property values due to December's deadly tornado. Superintendent Leonard Whalen said, and students leaving temporarily or permanently after a disaster complicates districts' enrollment numbers, potentially causing steep and sudden declines in revenue. Between a loss in property tax revenue and a drop in student enrollment and the dollars that come with it, 
Whalen estimates he would need to cut one-fifth of the roughly 500 student district's budget ahead of next school year. State funding to help make up the difference between what the district has and what it needs would help stabilize the district as the town rebuilds, Whalen said. He'd like to see a funding mechanism for at least five years for disaster-impacted districts on both sides of the state. Tax-based stabilization does not appear to be included in Bashir's call for a special session, meaning lawmakers won't be able to consider it until the 2023 regular session. Whalen wants districts to continue being able to use a previous year's enrollment figures to calculate per-student funding. A COVID-19 policy allows districts to base budgets on 2018 through 19 enrollments, but districts will need to use 2021 through 22 figures for next school year. Unlike tax stability, enrollment stability is on the table for lawmakers to consider. Bashir's proclamation allows new per-student funding rules for both Western and Eastern Kentucky districts. This article is accompanied by a photo that shows School Secretary Deanna Mullins collecting salvaged items so she can clean and return them to Martha Jane Potter Elementary near Kona. Our next item from the Metro page is entitled, Woman, 54, Accused of Threatening Neighbors. In 20, she was charged with writing racial slurs. By Caleb Stoltz. An Oldham County woman accused two years ago of painting racial slurs on a neighbor's property has been indicted in a separate case in which she's accused of threatening neighbors, and a federal judge denied her bond earlier this week. Suzanne Kraft was indicted on August 17 on five counts of communication with threat to kidnap or injure, federal court records show, after being accused of sending multiple threatening letters in late 2020, according to the U.S. Department of Justice Western District of Kentucky. Kraft is still detained pending trial, and the case is being investigated by the FBI and U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Kraft was in court Friday, federal records show, and her trial is set to begin in October. The 54-year-old woman faces a maximum sentence of 25 years in prison if convicted, without the possibility of parole. She's pleaded not guilty to the new charges. Kraft had been charged two years ago with three counts of criminal mischief and three counts of harassing communications after video surveillance taken on the Lake Forest property of Michaela and Connie Pineda showed a woman painting a racial slur and a swastika onto their driveway. Kraft, 52 at the time, was accused of being behind the act. After initially being charged in that case, she was later accused by a lawyer for the family of sending threatening letters in the mail to their home in November 2020. The indictment last week said the letters Kraft is accused of sending were sent in November and December 2020. The family's attorney, Vanessa Cantley, said in a previous interview with the Courier-Journal that the anonymous letter the Pinedas had received included racist slurs and bullets. Kraft was served with a no-contact order during a July 2020 arraignment following those initial charges, which are still pending, but court records show she's been found guilty of contempt of court twice since then for violating that order. She was sentenced to seven days in jail and seven days on house arrest in those two cases, according to court records. Kraft's trial is set to begin on August 24th. And our final article from the Metro page is entitled 9-11 Mobile Tribute to First Responders on Display at Fair by Jason Gonzalez. Steel beams from the World Trade Center. Recordings of first responders' transmissions. First-hand accounts of horror. The 9-11 Never Forget Mobile Exhibit is a major attraction at the Kentucky State Fair. The memorial which will be displayed all 11 days of the fair, is dedicated to first responders who died on September 11, 2001, and in the aftermath of the terrorist attack. It includes documentary videos and interactive guided tours by New York City firefighters. The exhibit is educational and 
It's a way to recognize our first responders, which plays a huge role in the lives and safety of all of us as Kentuckians and people in this country, said David Beck, President and CEO of the Kentucky State Fair Board. The exhibit, part of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, is 1,100 square feet, and all the items that are inside were found in the rubble of the two towers, and is pretty interesting for the simple fact the two towers were 110 stories tall, said Bill Puckett, exhibit field manager. Each floor was an acre, and some of the articles that we have are very small in nature, and just to see these articles found in that massive destruction, it's pretty amazing. John LaBarbera, a Tunnel to Towers Foundation board member and a retired New York City Fire Department battalion chief, who was summoned on his day off when a plane struck the World Trade Center, said tour guides provide patrons with appropriate historical context surrounding the details of that fateful day. You'll find the exhibit in the South Wing A-Lot, where it is open from 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. through August 28. The exhibit is included in the general admission costs for the fair. We do not charge anyone anything extra, Puckett said, we do have a donation box. If someone feels moved to make a donation to the foundation because everything we do is based off of a donation. But most importantly, we just want people to come see part of that tragic day, but also to see what good came from that tragedy. How much are tickets for the fair? Online tickets are $10 per person, which includes parking. Advance admission tickets are only available online through kystatefair.org slash tickets. Children five and under are free. Admission at the gate is $10 per person and $10 to park a vehicle. Kentucky State Fair admission and ride wristbands are available online at Ticketmaster and at all participating Kroger locations. This article is accompanied by photos. Two photos show the exterior of the 9-11 Never Forget mobile exhibit. One photo shows firefighters fighting the fire at the World Trade Center on 9-11. And another photo shows a firefighter's uniform shirt, which is accompanied by a photo of that firefighter. Next, let's turn to Kentucky Briefs. First, Thousands of pairs of shoes and socks go to Eastern Kentucky. From Frankfurt, thousands of pairs of shoes and socks are being distributed to people affected by flooding in Eastern Kentucky last month. The Samaritan's Feet organization partnered with the University of Kentucky men's basketball coach John Calipari, the Kentucky State basketball team, and state officials to give away bags containing shoes and socks Tuesday. The Calipari Foundation sponsored the events at Jenny Wiley State Resort Park in Prestonsburg and Buckhorn Lake State Resort Park in Buckhorn. Haynes Brands donated 10,000 pairs of socks for the events. Samaritan's Feet has served more than 8.7 million people in 108 countries and 530 U.S. cities. And our next Kentucky Brief is entitled, Seven Rural Public Transit Agencies to Split, $3.2 million from Frankfurt. Seven agencies will split $3.2 million in federal funding that was awarded for projects aimed at improving rural public transit systems in Kentucky, officials said. The funding will go to agencies across the state that serve 36 counties, a statement Tuesday from the Transportation Cabinet said. Some of the projects include replacing buses, enhancing technology, and paving a parking lot, according to the statement. A strong rural transportation network is critical for economic growth in Kentucky, Governor Andy Bashir said in the statement. These grants will go a long way towards replacing an aging fleet of buses with new vehicles and to enhance transit services in areas that need reliable transportation. The federal funds will be administered through the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. Now let's turn to the weekend section for an item entitled, Netflix's new animated film, Lost Ollie, is set in Shepherdsville, by Kirby Adams. Netflix viewers who stream Lost Ollie, a new live-action series based on William Joyce's book, Ollie's Odyssey, 
will be treated to a sweet story and an epic adventure centered around a most unlikely location, Shepherdsville, Kentucky. How Shepherdsville, population 14,797, became the setting for the new four-part miniseries is 100% the result of the Kentucky man who adapted the story from Joyce's book and produced the show for Netflix. Shannon Tilden grew up in Shepherdsville, graduated from St. Xavier High School, 1988 through 1992, and attended the University of Louisville and California Institute of the Arts from 1997 to 99. Tyndall has made a name in the film business as an animator, writer, producer, and director working on features such as the Academy Award-nominated Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings. At the Primetime Emmy Awards in 2006, Tyndall won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation for his character design on Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, which aired on the Cartoon Network. I have always loved film, he said. When I was growing up, I would obsessively look at the entertainment section in the Sunday Courier-Journal because it had the movie listings at showcase cinemas. I still think about the smell of the newsprint and getting so excited to see ads for Empire Strikes Back, E.T., and Raiders of the Lost Ark, all of my favorite films. That was my go-to section because we didn't have the Internet. His love of filmmaking eventually led the Kentuckian to Los Angeles, where he has worked for Cartoon Network Studios, DreamWorks Animation, and Leica Studios in Portland, Oregon. Although his work keeps him based on the West Coast, Tyndall doesn't miss a chance to return to Shepherdsville to visit his family and friends. And when it came time to pitch movie executives on his concept for Lost Ollie, he was resolute that the show be set in the small town that none of the execs had heard of before. It was important to me to set the story in my hometown of Shepherdsville, because it's not a place where one expects to see fantasy, Tyndall told the Courier-Journal. I felt like it would be incredible for kids and families to see a fantasy set in their hometown, because in a small town, you don't think about what might be around the corner or in the shadows. To see characters moving through those environments is really powerful. Shepherdsville is very important to me, and I hope that folks who grew up where I grew up see themselves in the show. The four-part series is a heartwarming tale for the child in us all, remembering those special souls that we've lost but who forever changed our lives. Lost Ollie tells the story of a lost toy who braves the many dangers of childhood as he searches the countryside to reunite with the boy who lost him. It's also the story of the boy who lost more than a best friend. The cast includes Jonathan Groff, Mary J. Blige, Tim Blake Nelson, Gina Rodriguez, Jake Johnson, and Kessler Talbot. Everybody in the show is incredible, Tyndall said. They are the nicest people in the world, and it was a joy to work with each of them. During the writing of the show, Tyndall called his mom and put her on speakerphone so the writing staff could better understand the dialect of someone who lives in Shepherdsville. He also used his 94-year-old grandfather for inspiration. Besides Shepherdsville, you'll also see the skyline of Louisville in the show's promotion poster, he said. In Episode 2, the Ohio River and the Bell of Louisville are important. You'll see the Salt River make an appearance and Highway 44, which is featured prominently in Episode 3. You don't live in Shepherdsville and not travel down Highway 44. Some very famous occupants of Bernheim Forest, who might be giants, also make an appearance in Lost Ollie. Bernheim Forest has always been a very special place for me, said Tyndall. We did a night shoot there. We shot for 12 hours and it was incredible. Tyndall, who served as a creator, writer, and executive producer, said he was surrounded by some of the best crew in the business while making Lost Ollie, including the show's director, Academy Award winner Peter Ramsey, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, who also serves as executive producer. Lost Ollie premiered on Netflix on August 24, and Tyndall hopes enough viewers enjoy the show that a second season will be ordered. I have some ideas for Mammoth Cave if we get a second season, he told the Courier-Journal. 
But first, Tyndall will finish the first CG animated feature, Ultraman, for Netflix. Tyndall grew up watching the kaiju-fighting superhero cartoon after school on Channel 41. Now he's making his feature directorial debut with the much-anticipated feature film. We're deep into the process, but animation takes a long time, and we're still about a year out, he said. Ultraman couldn't be any more different than Lost Ollie, but I made sure to get some nods to Kentucky into this film, too. KFC is huge in Asia, and I made sure to include some nods to the Colonel, Harlan Sanders, in Ultraman. This concludes excerpts from the Courier-Journal for Thursday, August 25, 2022. Your reader has been Cindy Fraser. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.